Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be my friend and former colleague at St. Louis University, Dr. Benjamin Winter. Dr. Winter is a professor at the Divine Word College in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, and he and I talk about St. Bonaventure, the Seraphic Doctor, a Franciscan monk from the 13th century who was active about the same time as Thomas Aquinas. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. We talk about faith and reason. We talk about humility and intellectual pursuits, uh, and it was a very enjoyable conversation with a friend of mine, so I hope that you uh, will enjoy that as well. Uh, looking forward, we do have um, episodes that we'll be recording with Dr. Hans Bersma, um, who's out now at the Nashitoa House in Wisconsin, and he wrote a book called Seeing God. It's about the beatific vision um, in Christian thought, and uh, I'm very excited about that conversation. It'll give a different sort of side of the position that we talked about with uh, Dr. Philip Carey on hearing in the gospel. Um, I'm also looking forward to an interview that I'll be doing with Dr. Michael McClymond. Dr. McClyman wrote a work on universal salvation um, and where its sort of roots lie in early Gnostic and Christian texts um, and how it has continued to be interest to theologians throughout the ages. Um, and ultimately, Dr. McClyman thinks that it is not part of the um, sort of traditional Orthodox position, uh, Orthodox Christian position, but we will go into that, why um, he thinks that that's not the case and, and how prevalent this doctrine doctrine was um, throughout the ages. So um, I hope you'll look forward to that conversation with me. Both of those will be recorded in the next several weeks, um, and hopefully I'll get to talk with Tom and Trevor as well. Thank you for listening, and if you do have any questions, please forward them along. Uh, I, do, I did receive a question this week from a fella by the name of Richard Ellis, and he asked me some questions about Augustine um, and why Augustine seems to indicate that one needn't read scripture once they had perf perfected the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Um, so I gave him a, a bit of an answer on there, uh, but I will just say briefly in response um, to, to Richard Ellis on here that I think that Augustine says this because he thinks that that is ultimately what we are trying to do. We're ultimately trying to achieve these uh, theological virtues as Christians, but I don't believe that Augustine would have thought that any of us could actually get there uh, this side of eternity. Um, but uh, yeah, but anyway, that's probably what he was talking about there. Uh, but if you have other questions, please forward them along. I enjoy um, engaging with my listeners um, and trying to get a sense of where you all are coming from. So I appreciate it. Um, please like us on iTunes. Uh, Facebook um, and all these different things um, you know your your reviews are helpful and we appreciate it so thanks for listening um, without further ado Dr. Ben Winter and we will see you next time well so this week um, I'm interviewing Dr. Ben Winter and Dr. Winter is assistant professor of theology at Divine Word College um, which I believe is in Iowa, although I can't remember, Dubuque? Dubuque, northeastern Dubuque. Iowa, a little slice of paradise up here. <laughs> um, and Ben is also the editor-in-chief of Conciliar Post, a, um online uh, website that seeks to bring in, um, so it's sort of an ecumenical website, voices um, from throughout Christendom, uh, or sort of the broader uh, Christian uh, life, I guess, people from different denominations and mm. Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Um, and I've actually contributed a few pieces there. Yeah. Um, so uh, as early back as I think 2015 was maybe the first time that you started writing for us. 
Yeah, went way yeah. way back while I was uh, well. Well, and well, I we, guess that also brings mm-hmm. us to how I know uh, mm-hmm. Doctor Winter Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Ben because he and I both well actually well we both studied at St. Louis University together. Uh, but um, we all that. Yep. together. Um, and Ben is actually closer to my brother's age, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of funny. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, but Ben and I have kind of known known each other, known about each other for quite a long time. Yes. Um, and uh, so it's fun to have him on the podcast because he wrote his dissertation on someone that I don't know that we've ever mentioned Bonaventure's name in five years in this podcast, which I'm sure is a pox on us um, and a problem uh, that I am rectifying today. Um, He wrote his dissertation um, called Renewing Disciplines of the Mind, Philosophical Errors, Virtue, and the Soul's Journey to Wisdom in Vision 1 of Bonaventure's Colaciones in Hexameron. Uh, so a short title, um, like most dissertations. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not going to be the final title, I hope. I, I would like to transform that title into something a little bit more playful. I'm thinking a hex on the philosopher's faith and reason in Bonaventure's unfinished masterwork. Whoa, there we go. I like that. New title because uh, the abbreviation for this long text is hex. And it works uh-huh. very well with um, the question that he's answering in Vision 1, which is how should we engage with philosophical truth okay so i mean one of the so this dissertation this work actually although it's very um it's an understudied element of bonaventure's um opera um but it it actually touches on a lot of really um significant themes when people think about the the medieval period the middle ages um one often thinks about the debates over faith and reason um, one thing that I want to get to are the transcendentals. Um, so for my many of my listeners come from a classical Christian school background. Mm-hmm. So many of us are familiar with the true, good, and the beautiful. Uh, but Bonaventure speaks most frequently about the one, the true, and the good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's uh, there's even a little bit of uh, he has some things to say about these uh, so-called transcendentals, what they are, how, what role they play. So we'll get into some of that later. Um, and so as a little teaser there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a- as I said. We we have not mentioned Bonaventure uh, on this podcast in part because uh, we've been going for five or six years now, I guess, um, and we haven't made it out of the fourth century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, but uh, but part of the fun about these interviews has been uh, bringing in other voices who are significant in the tradition. So Bonaventure is a 13th century theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franciscan, um, but other than that, what, what, Ben, what, what do, uh, what should Christians know? So my, my podcast is a little bit like conciliar post. I have people from mm-hmm. who are Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, you know, um, probably predominantly Protestant. Um, sure. and I had never heard of Bonaventure myself, probably before my PhD program. Maybe I heard it mm-hmm. in my master's. I don't remember, but, but yeah, so we don't know Bonaventure. So what do we need to know about Bonaventure? <laughs> oh, I think you'll get your fill today. Hopefully it should uh, carry you over for a while, but uh, Bonaventure was a leader in the church during the 13th century. He was a intellectual, a luminary, uh, quite on the level of St. Thomas Aquinas, although certainly not quite as popular as his angelic counterpart. He's known as the seraphic doctor, which is always a little bit of a one-up that us Bonaventure folks like to maybe rub in the face of the Aquinas people, perhaps a bit too much. But he's known as the seraphic doctor because he reflected on a vision that St. Francis received. St. Francis famously 
uh, spent a lot of time in prayer, was very deeply connected to Christ, and Francis received a vision of Christ crucified, but it was sort of transmutated or it was placed atop of a six-winged seraph. And uh, Francis never really wrote too much about that vision. Bonaventure sort of picked up the mantle of many of the interesting experiences and insights that Francis had, and Bonaventure brought them into the academy. He himself, Bonaventure, was the seventh minister general of the Franciscan order. Uh, so that's the seventh person to, to lead that group of, of men who were trying to rebuild the church, trying to uh, embrace humility and poverty. But he did so in a way that also was respectful toward knowledge <laughs> and uh, valuing of the classroom experience. When you mm -hmm. think of St. Francis, you don't think of the classroom. You think of the birds and the squirrels and brother son and <laughs> right, right. or death. Um, and, and that's what's attracted me to Bonaventure uh, is just how he is a living example of, of someone who seeks to balance out contemplation and action. Um, he is both, as you mentioned before, a, a teacher and he is a minister. So maybe that's kind of all over the place, but uh, that's sort of, I guess, some of the things that one would need to know about Bonaventure, a very influential theologian, teacher, leader of the Franciscan order, and a mystic who was uh, also highly educated in the University of Paris. Okay. Yeah, very good. So, I mean, again, I'll, I'll go real simple here. Sure. Many of us have probably uh, heard of St. Thomas, or excuse me, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, you know, one thing, I, I live in a very uh, Catholic area of St. Louis, as most are, and you can walk down the street and uh, see in people's back gardens often little uh, statues of Francis mm -hmm. um, or Mary. Um, mm -hmm. But Francis is often uh, in the garden, maybe with a bird or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, and, and so so uh, Bonaventure is in that same order. Yes. Um, and uh, one of the most important uh, features of, or, or sort of like, um, go ahead. Oh, I thought you were uh, like a, the charism of the order. Uh, go ahead though. Sorry. Oh yeah. The charism of the order. Yeah. Go for it. Oh, I, I just was anticipating that you were going to say, what does it mean to be a Franciscan? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. I yeah. grew up Protestant. I didn't know Franciscans existed, <laughs> yeah. um, but you see them walking around in, in brown robes. Um, and yeah, one of the charisms of the order is is care for creation. The current Roman Pope namesake, the first one to take Francis as as his um, as his namesake. He himself is Jesuit, though, so that's a whole separate can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's just to briefly say that the, the 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 defining characteristic or or charism or gift of the Franciscan order is is care for creation and a a lowercase s sacramental worldview that that seeks to find God in and through all things. But go yeah. ahead, Jeff. No, that's great. And so what we have in um, Bonaventure is someone who sort of comes out of that order, mm -hmm. uh, but the the sort of the thing that rocked the world of the 13th century are the translations of, of um, Aristotle into Latin. So they're coming, it uh, looks like they're coming from uh, several different places. In some cases, they're coming from Spain, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. often through Arabic, um, but then maybe some that were coming from Greek straight into Latin um, with some connections to the Byzantine Empire. So the 13th century is awash with uh, conversations um, about 
you know, how to interpret Aristotle, how does Aristotle fit um, into the sort of, um, we could call it the medieval syllabus. So there was only so much Aristotle that was even read yes. um, previous to the 13th century. Um, so, you know, for in large part, the there's about eight, eight or nine uh, or seven or eight centuries where um, a lot of literature and learning was sort of cut off uh, because of uh, the the Roman Empire being split, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the technically I guess the the Roman Empire um, exists up into the 15th century in uh, Byzantium. They called themselves mm -hmm. Romeoi, yep. uh, but uh, but nevertheless in the in the West and in the Latin speaking worlds, um, there's there's this big break, um, and so Arist Aristotle is not read. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of translations, but so he comes in and um, is embraced by some, and then that's that's actually where a lot of Ben's work comes in uh to what extent should franciscans should uh christians uh people who are being educated i guess in paris um to what extent should they read philosophy what is it helpful and maybe should we pump the brakes on it some is that right yeah what are the the limits of philosophy um your listeners may be familiar with the old uh what has Jerusalem to do with Athens or there vice versa? This is we, uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, you could check out our podcast on Tertullian. There you go. There you go. So the same debate continues, albeit through a slightly new lens. People were asking, what has Assisi, you know, the home, home of Francis, what has Assisi to do with Paris? Okay. <laughs> That's a, an interesting question. So uh -huh. there was a lot of change going on, as you mentioned. Uh, there was all this new knowledge flowing in. And one of the most evocative passages in Bonaventure's corpus is when he slips into the first person. Uh, I have not seen another example of this, and okay. I've read a lot of Bonaventure. <laughs> Bonaventure slips into the first person. He says, when I first heard that Aristotle taught that the world was eternal, and I saw the reasons and arguments for this, my heart began to be troubled. And I, I wondered to myself, how can this be? And it's just that attracted me. I, I remember reading that back during my master's program at Villanova and just thinking, wow, I can relate to this as a graduate student encountering some new knowledge uh, that is still very much in flux. There's all sorts of things that we are challenged uh, when we study any subject th that just totally throw us off and, and disorient us. And I could really relate to that. And I thought, wow, I want to imitate someone like Bonaventure who didn't just dismiss it. But he spent really the rest of his career trying to learn how to engage with these new philosophical and scientific ideas. And then here at the end of his life, because this is the last thing he did, the Collations in Hexameron, he is trying to diffuse some of that wisdom to a group of Franciscans who are, as I describe in the in the book, the one percent. The people who are going to, I know you made a, a joke about that, but <laughs> they're the people who are going to go back and teach other uh, Franciscans. And Bonaventure is trying to impart his way of balancing faith and reason to them. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of funny to think about Aristotle uh, being... Um, uh, cutting edge. Know, new, new knowledge, cutting edge, but <laughs> right. there you go. <laughs> but, yeah. As you said, though, it was just largely lost for centuries upon centuries. And there were many mistakes as well, where Neoplatonic writings were assumed to be written by Aristotle, such as the Book of Causes. And, you know, it was just a huge mess. And we can thank people like Albertus Magnus and Aquinas, Alexander of Hales, Bonaventure. You know, all these folks were really on the front lines 
um, before the infamous condemnations of 1277, which was a real turning point in the history of the church's relationship to science. As, mm-hmm. as many of your listeners have heard, those condemnations were, I think there were almost 300 of them. Mm. Um, and it was a, a sort of a ban hammer, if you will, where the church said, here are a bunch of propositions that you cannot teach and you cannot mm. believe these things. Um, and actually, some of the things Aquinas taught were in there. <laughs> Um, and one of the goals of my dissertation is to uh, extract Bonaventure from this narrative of him as a regressive, conservative Augustinian. Mm. Because sure, we Bonaventure hate those Augustinians had... on this podcast. I just need to throw that out there. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> Bonaventure is squarely Augustinian in many ways, but that doesn't mean he's regressive, right? Yeah. I think you would agree with that. Augustine is not a, a regressive or reactionary thinker who wants to close in and, you know. So anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but that was one of the aims of the original dissertation was to extract Bonaventure from the the largely negative narrative where he is portrayed as someone who is anti-philosophical because of some of his sharp rhetoric in this final book. But I, I'm kind of arguing that that is taken out of context by... Um, people who don't read the whole thing (laughs) so yeah well no i i was making the joke that i mean if anything this is a terribly uh, this is an extremely augustinian podcast that's if we talk we talk about augustine way more than anyone else um i'll be right at home then yeah that's right yeah no i mean i think we spent like nine months on the confessions so yeah that's that's a good amount of time (laughs) yeah i'll I'll spend at least a couple on on the book on time (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, we did. We did a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I've written some on it, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, well, let's let's get into the dissertation a little bit. Um, sure. I wanted to read some stuff uh, from Bonaventure himself, mm-hmm. and this seems to be maybe a pretty. Uh, uh, um, well, actually, before I even read this quote, mm-hmm. now actually, I'm going to read the quote, and then I'm going to have you explain what we're reading. Okay. Um, so let's let's do the quote, and then you tell us like what what are the collations in the Hexameron? Why is that the title? Yeah. Um, and uh, but th- this quote really encapsulates, in in my mind, a lot of what you were trying to um, elucidate for us from from uh, Bonaventure. So this comes from uh, Hex three mm-hmm. two. Um, Therefore, the key to contemplation is a triple understanding, namely understanding of the uncreated word through whom all things are made, the incarnate word through whom all things are repaired, and the understanding of the inspired word through whom all things are revealed. For unless a person can consider these things, how they are originated, how they are uh, (laughs) reducted, uh, how they are led back to the end, Mm -hmm. and how God is reflected in them, one cannot have understanding. Um, so that seems to be a key passage for you and a key part of these um, collations. So why don't you tell us a little bit, what are the collations? And then maybe why is this uh, quote important? Certainly, you picked one of the one of the best possible quotes there, but it's also a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not going to be easy to unpack all of it. But first, oh, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, you That's, have to read no. it. No, it's great. But the first, I guess, the genre of collations, it's kind of a hybrid between a disputation and a sermon. Um, it's a scholastic sermon, and it was uh, a, a developing form that was popular during Bonaventure's era. And oftentimes, these little talks, I guess, is what we would describe them as. They're also known as conferences um, mm-hmm. because it comes from confrere, bringing people, brothers together. He would get together with a group of brothers and would give a speech to them. But 
it was also liturgically grounded. So uh, in the first three conferences, which you just read from conference number three, uh, Bonaventure reflects on uh, scriptural passages that he uh, derives from the church calendar because many of these were given during the Lenten season. So he would often give a morning talk and an evening talk. And so just as a practical note, for example, conference number one, it's divided into two in the manuscript tradition. And the first half of that was delivered during the morning. The second half of it was delivered in the evening. So it was kind of a way for the brothers to start and end their day um, with the wisdom of Bonaventure. He is trying, like I mentioned before, to give them a roadmap to help uh, explain what they're doing in the academy and ultimately why their charism as Franciscans involves doing what that quote says, which is looking at all created things through this lens of beginning, middle, and end in God. All of mm -hmm. that, of course, through through Christ, who is the mediator or the exemplar of, of truth. Uh-huh. Very good. Very good. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is sort of um, one of the interesting things about reading through your dissertation. Uh, you you kind of um, you recognize that for Bonaventure, like, you know, it really encapsulates all of the Christian life in terms of there's some mystical contemplation. So sort of communion with God, there's intellectual pursuit, understanding the place of Aristotle and the things that, you know, I mean, Bonaventure is, is well, uh, welcomes um, things that he can learn from Aristotle. Uh, but also you are quick to point out, uh, especially in chapter six, uh, but maybe towards the end of the dissertation, um, uh, the sort of the action that proceeds from all of this. Um, mm -hmm. I know typically, I guess it's sort of, uh, contemplatio at axio or something. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in some respects, we could also, you know, we could think about almost three different things, um, sort of philosophical investigation um, as maybe another one. But I th it seems like for Bonaventure, that's really subsumed um, in contemplation. Um, yes. And yes. and so, yeah, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. so Bonaventure kind of has um, a lot to teach us in every aspect of life. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to disagree with that, but <laughs> I think Bonaventure would look down upon me with disfavor. He is my patron saint. When I became Catholic, I took his name. So okay. <laughs> he's going to no. look at you with disfavor. Yeah. <laughs> no. Let's not get into the <laughs> Chad and I have had conversations before about uh saintly intercession and things like that but <laughs> yeah. Um no, I think one of the things that drew me into this topic was just little notes that Bonaventure makes early on in this book about the connection between metaphysics and morality. Mm. Um so that's that's kind of a theme that you were just touching on right there because really what was happening in, in the academy at the time was that there were a bunch of people like C.J. of Brabant and um, a couple of others who were kind of stepping out of the traditional bounds of, of, of what the disciplines were, were perceived to do, uh, sort of remaining as masters of philosophy rather than advancing into law or medicine or theology. And uh, that is sort of what led eventually to those condemnations that I mentioned earlier was just sort of this idea is philosophy its own autonomous discipline that does not need any relationship to faith. Um, and it, some scholars have even called this the birth of the modern mind after the, <laughs> after the condemnations of 1277. I think that's a little bit myopic um, and uh, you know, those sorts of broad brush paintings of the past are, often anachronistic, but it, there is something that changed 
right around this time when there was so much new knowledge coming in. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like reminding me of uh, the reaction to the theory of evolution and how we're still sort of dealing with, well, how much should Christians embrace this? And is there a way to live in this tension where there's certain principles of natural knowledge that seem directly opposed to theological truth? I mean, that's what captivated me about Bonaventure's approach because he didn't just stay on the intellectual level. He brought it all back to how we live life mm-hmm. <laughs> and what kind of um, attitude we should have toward God and toward toward our fellow man. So, so what is the un- so what is a Bonaventure's solution to the reason and revelation problem or the faith and reason problem? How does he how does he think that that's solved? Yeah. Um, oh man, I think easy question. Come on, go ahead. What's that? I said it's an easy question. Come on. Of course. I mean, I should. (laughs) Why are we even here? I mean, it's already all been solved for us. Why are we even talking right now? (laughs) I think uh, this is a valiant effort, his his final set of work here, which, by the way, it is unfinished. He only made it through uh, four out of the seven days of creation. That that was probably something I should have mentioned before, is that technically he's doing a commentary on the seven days of creation, but... There's not very much in it that actually relates to that. He's 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 more or less framing his insights about the the state of the academy, at least in this first vision that I studied. He's using Genesis as a way in. He's using that to provide some structure to his treatment of the relationship between faith and reason. Um, now, he doesn't have any ready-made solution for this. Um, he does not want to go too far in either direction. And it's, it's important that, on the one hand, he does not name or call out any philosophers that he disagrees with. Mm. He was a very powerful person at this point in, in his life. This is the zenith of his career. Uh, directly after he delivered the, these collations, he actually went uh, and represented the Catholic Church at uh, the second, uh, I think it's the Second Council of Lyon. Is It was the council where the East and the West were actually rectified on paper. Mm. <laughs> uh, Aquinas was there as well. Uh, anyhow, that's just to, to say that Bonaventure was a very influential person at this time. And okay. I find it striking that he does not actually call out or rule out the type of philosophical work that's being done in, in the arts faculty at the University of Paris. Mm-hmm. He is very positive about Aristotle. And I go to great lengths in the dissertation to show just how much he relies on Aristotle. It's something like 75% of the times he mentions Aristotle. It's a net positive. Um, And at the same time, though, you know, he's, on the other hand, encouraging the pursuit of wisdom. And he's recognizing that when we're looking for knowledge, we are not ultimately ending in the things themselves. He's very Augustinian in that sense. I'm sure your readers know of the uti frui distinction, right? Earthly things, we should use them. We should not delight in them. And so he has this concern that as more and more philosophical, scientific, or natural philosophy, as more and more of that knowledge uh, is, is spread, there is a growing arrogance that he detects. And he's very worried that it's going to puff people up and, and make them think that any question can be answered without resort to mystery and ultimately to, to sacramental reality where signs convey the truth about God, but they don't contain 
the entire truth. There's there's always got to be that standing of the creature before the divine ineffable depth. So he he remains a good a good mystic in that way. <laughs> I don't know, it's kind of all over the place, but go ahead, Chad. What's your what's your no? Follow-up? That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that you um, highlight in there, I, there's just mm-hmm. there's just so much. It's a it's a it's a rich text. And there's so much that we haven't explored uh, in the podcast in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, I, in some respects, you know, I haven't explored either. So that's, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to learn from you um, in this uh, in this podcast. It, it, it feels uh, it, there's like uh, very rich soil, right? Whatever the metaphor. Um, Certainly. Or, or rich uh, flesh pots, you could even say. <laughs> Dainty flesh pots of Egypt that we need to plunder. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Um well, so yeah, what are the? So, I mean, one of the things that this is, um, that this po- that this uh, these collations were meant to refute mm-hmm. were the three errors. Yes, um, and you've mentioned one explicitly, which is that uh, Aristotle thought that the world was eternal, mm-hmm. um, and so Bonaventure uh, says uh, that 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 you know that that's wrong uh, mm-hmm. in the Christian tradition uh, as Genesis teaches and as mm-hmm. the patristics uh, Augustine among others um, have uh, said that that's that's can't we can't hold that as a Christian mm-hmm. so what mm-hmm. are the errors that he's trying to refute good I'm glad you asked that because that actually fits with the the sort of threefold structure that was yep. mentioned in that quote that you yep. read uh, the beginning the middle and the end and that was one of the contributions of my dissertation was to say that Bonaventure is deliberately framing these three errors in terms of an error against the beginning, the middle, and the end. So I'll get into what they are, but I I think that's important to note is that there were any number of philosophical errors circulating at the Mm -hmm. time. And as I mentioned, when we get to 1277, three years after this uh, book, after this conference was, or after these conferences were delivered in 1274. So three years later, boom, huge list, almost 300 errors. Bonaventure yeah. picks just three, and they are the eternity of the world, that the world has always existed. They are the unicity of the intellect, which is this idea that there is only one intellect and uh-huh. that we humans participate in this sort of world soul or mind. That's okay. the error in the middle because that's how knowledge is mediated. Uh-huh. That is the way that we relate to things that we know would be through this universal intellect. No, that's not what the Christian you know, tradition teaches. We yeah. teach that we have an individuated soul that is illuminated, to, to use Augustine's words, by God through Christ. And then finally, the third error, which is the least studied uh, in, in Bonaventure scholarship, but I think maybe the most important, is this idea of fated necessity. Mm. This notion that the ethical sphere is in some ways what we would describe today as predetermined. Mm-hmm. That that actions cannot be praised or blamed, um, and there's many different reasons that are that are given as to why perhaps one should reserve judgment on uh, delineating a good or a bad uh, label for an action, and that is the one that I think concerns Bonaventure the most. However, he doesn't spend that much time on it, so that was one of the tasks that I had was to sort of tease out how is that error, which is an error against the end because it, it relates to the final fate of a person, right? You're known by your fruits. So how does that error kind of wrap back around to the beginning? How are all three of these, these uh, errors that Bonaventure chooses to highlight, how are they connected and how do they um, inform his treatment of philosophy? Because mm. 
most of the readers of Bonaventure have noticed that he has a very strong invective against these errors, but I don't think that they've quite properly contextualized where that uh, polemic fits into the vision that Bonaventure is painting of knowledge of the natural world. So one thing that just struck me as you were talking yeah. um, in that third era, I didn't focus as much on that mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I was uh, reading through your work because I got sidetracked by how interested I was in the transcendentals, which I want to get to. Yeah. Um, but so so the problem for him um, with uh, like fated necessity or whatever uh, the the problem of um, in the if we were to do something, whether mm -hmm. or not it's predetermined. But you said as much as anything, it has to do with the judgment of whether or not an action is good or bad. So it's, is it, yeah. is the emphasis less on sort of um, a question of free will um, to put it really simply um, and as much a question on whether or not one could know whether the action was good or bad. I, can you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah the, the, the question of free will actually comes in more directly in the second error because okay. that, that involves how we make decisions, how we know things. Uh -huh. The third error is a bit more nebulous. Um, okay. And I love using that word because the third person of the Trinity is also very nebulous. <laughs> um, and just briefly then, you know, why is it so important to Bonaventure? Because it affects the way that one lives life. Uh -huh. And he is very strongly putting forward this idea that um, intellectual mistakes ultimately can be sourced in the affect, which okay. the affect is something that we don't have a good word for in English, but it's like the heart. Yeah. And, and so Bonaventure doesn't have a problem with people learning about interesting arguments about the eternity of the world or the unicity of the intellect. He himself spent years studying these things and teaching them and debating them. It is that third element of fated necessity, this idea that the actions that you're doing aren't going to have any kind of consequence mm. <laughs> or that we just can't know. And, and so it, it, to him, it, it, it's... um. It's a, what do you call it? It, it diminishes virtue. That's mm. what he is most concerned about is, is trying to form these brothers that he's speaking to, to be ministers, to be yeah. people who are bringing Christ into the world. And, um, you know, let's face it, most people that you meet aren't going to care about the eternity of the world and the unicity of the intellect, but they are going to care about whether they can find happiness and what their actions actually <laughs> you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, what they do. <laughs> so anyway. So, so, okay. So I see. So the implication is not, it's not some sort of like, I mean, both, both Ben and I went to a Presbyterian school, um, yeah. And uh, we you, we would always it seemed like every year. So I grew up uh, Southern Baptist. My dad was was not a Calvinist, um, mm -hmm. and uh, we always had to have the debate over predestination. Um, and yeah. so to go a little bit simple here, you're not mm -hmm. saying that the question for Bonaventure is simply one of whether or not uh, salvation or something or even our actions are predetermined. Really, mm -hmm. this is a point about. Um, I guess how Aristotelians were looking at people who are reading Aristotle, thinking that there were certain things that we should be circumspect about, mm -hmm. um, and then therefore inhibiting action. Um, yeah, okay. I have I have two very short thoughts that will help clarify that. Yeah. The first is that up until recently, scholarship has been talking about this controversy in terms of Averroism or anti-Aristotelianism, 
But more recently, a new framework has emerged, which is called philosophical asceticism. Uh-huh. This idea that philosophy as a discipline is sufficient for making a person happy. Uh-huh. So that is sort of the framework that scholars have now begun to understood why people cared so much about these errors, because it's not just an intellectual question. It, it, it trickles into daily life. Okay. Um, second thing I'll say about this is I have a little quote here that I that I wrote um, from chapter three. And and so for Bonaventure, here's the quote. I, I would say this. The primary obstacle that stands in the way is not others, but disorder in one's own soul and the corresponding mm-hmm. effect it has upon community. This is manifest by the overwhelming amount of time Bonaventure spends discussing the virtues as opposed to the shorter but more bombastic remarks he has for those who have abandoned intellectual moderation. So in conference six and seven, he deals with these errors. He says, okay, look, here's the three errors. That takes up four sections, but then the remaining 25 sections in each conference are a discussion of the cardinal virtues and the theological virtues, respectively, Mm -hmm. conference six and conference seven. And no scholar has ever made that connection before. Everyone just talks about oh, wow, he hates these errors. But they don't realize that his next move is to discuss, okay, what can philosophy do for you? Here's the four cardinal virtues. Mm -hmm. Okay, what can theology do? Here's the three theological ones. And then that is where we begin the healing process of addressing intellectual um, oversteps. We don't start just in the academy. We start in the heart is what he would say. So, Yeah. yeah. Hope, hope that's helpful to to, no, to that's, listeners. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Um, and I mean, it, and one of the things that that um, that I enjoyed towards the end, our uh, our listeners, uh, the the most recent podcast I released was um, uh, "Divine Humility: God's Morally Perfect Being" with, with uh, Wilcoxon, right? Yeah, with Wilcoxon. Yeah, and uh, Doctor Wilcoxon helped us uh, sort of think through what does it mean to call Christ humble. Um, and you know, whether, and whether or not that, that says something about, uh, the, the Trinity, um, um, in say like in itself. Um, and anyway, uh, regardless, humility is a bit of a preoccupation of mine. Uh, it was, uh, mm-hmm. it played a, a central role in my dissertation, uh, as well as Dr. Wilcoxon. So that for Bonaventure and for you, uh, was one of the, I mean, it's interesting, uh, humility is neither one of the cardinal or theological virtues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it does have a sort of central role um, in this, um, in sort of the movement maybe from philosoph- philosophical mm-hmm. asceticism towards mm-hmm. sort of action in life or and even the question of happiness, uh, it sounds like, for, for Bonaventure. And I mean happiness maybe more in the, the Beata Vita um, mm-hmm. uh, sense or eudaimonia in the Aristotelian way, um, not, not just like do you feel happy this moment? Um, yeah, it sure does. And even that goes back to St. Francis. There's a really great passage in Bonaventure's life that he wrote of Francis where he describes that vision I mentioned earlier where Francis is on top of Mount Alverno and he sees the crucified one atop the six-winged seraph. Bonaventure says Francis didn't go up there ascending to the heights as one pridefully seeking to, to open his eyes to the divine light. No, he was a humble servant who... Mm-hmm received these these wounds actually he was wounded by god he was struck to the core and that inspired him to to love others rather than to separate himself and and stay up on the mountaintop i'm I'm thinking of maybe plotinus and his his own Mm. interactions with the one you know the seven times in his life that he reached that height that wouldn't be enough for Bonaventure. And, yeah. and that what was, ha- what was happening in this time was people were enjoying natural contemplation and reaching these fabled heights of, uh, of, of 
oneness. And Bonavich is trying to say, okay, but what do you do when you come back down? You know, how, how, how is that going to affect your behavior? Are you going to pursue curiosity and carnality? Are you going to lead people into um, a, a sense of pride that they can just know everything? Um, so anyhow, it's, it's all related exactly as you were saying, humility is sort of a precondition <laughs> for all the virtues and certainly for, for, for prudence, I would say humility is necessary to rightly judge, uh, the relationship between knowledge and action. So. Well, so, so here's a simple question where I think you might've answered it a little bit in the dissertation, but it's sort of interesting. Um, you know, it sounds like another kind of theme that we're touching on here that, that might have sort of broader interest. You know, a lot of people will say, um, you know, I, I, I think I even saw a tweet about this the other day where someone said, I always thought that being a, 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 pa a good pastor was about, you know, whether or not I preached the right things or taught the right things. Mm -hmm. But I realized the most important thing is whether I do the right things. Mm -hmm. And then one of the responses I saw was, um, well, why think that you should have, why, why think that one is at the exclusion of the other? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, but maybe one, one other question that you might ask, and that I think Bonaventure yeah. might have an answer to, um, does one have to precede the other? Um, that is, mm -hmm. uh, does one, should one contemplate before one acts? Is there a kind of order, uh, for, for this that, uh, you know, yeah, you need to contemplate first before you act or the other way around or something like that. Uh, so, you know, what is the relationship here um, in terms of may maybe even just chronologically? Um, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think Bonaventure is ever going to be giving a simple answer to that. Uh -huh. um, I'm thinking about some recent work that was done by uh, Robert Davis. It was a book about affect in Bonaventure. Um, if you look that up, just Davis, affect, A-F-F-E. CT in Bonaventure, he talks about um, the root of one's conscience. And this is something I encountered in Bonaventure's work as well. Uh, just as an example, you know, Bonaventure believes that we have an innate moral sense. Mm -hmm. But where does that come from? He's very Augustinian. And he will say that ultimately it comes from uh, an exposure to truth itself, who is the person of Christ. So there's always going to be an interplay for for Bonaventure between the things that we know and the things that we do it's it's not possible to separate those things um but i think it really depends on his audience in the end mm -hmm. right you know this audience here that he speaks to is this group of franciscan brothers and he has a platform where he can encourage them to be prudent to pray to study the scriptures um you know not to dwell and uh, become curious, but to use philosophy and the works of theologians as tools to become more holy. And that's really the emphasis that he gets to toward the, the end of his uh, lectures. Um, however, when he's speaking to students, <laughs> um, Bonaventure is also very clear that right knowledge and right action are going to go together. He has this strong belief <sighs> that there is a beauty and a fittingness to the truths of faith. Um, uh -huh. Some of the examples I gave in, in, in the text are he'll use Aristotle uh, to try and prove the Trinity, <laughs> even though Aristotle knew nothing of the Trinity and, and neither did Plato for that matter. Bonaventure has no qualms about taking some of their principles, some of their uh, what we would call uh, epistemological assumptions and saying, oh, look how this points, for example, to the um, perfect emanation of, of the son from the father. Em emanation is not maybe the right word. The perfect um, 
what what would be a better word than emanation? Because Bonaventure uses that, but that has a kind of a you know seats procession. Yeah. yeah, the perfect yeah. relationship, the bond of expression between the father and son. Yeah, he'll use Aristotelian um, cognition to uh-huh. describe that process. You know, um, so he's he's very optimistic yeah. that the ancient philosophers have something of 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 fittingness is the word you yep. would use that can teach mm. us about the truths of faith. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I mean, it, and it's again, it's one of those sort of perennial questions. And I would say that um, one of the reasons that I studied the thing that I studied uh, for my research uh, was in part my own. Uh, I think it, it's a, it's sort of a problem that I have almost, and and it seems like uh, it's a perennial problem. I mean, part of what I'm learning from Bonaventure and from you um, is just how um, recurrent the theme is that people like me who like to study, who like to read theology and philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can't use that as an excuse to ignore the, the, uh, the world around us and the action, you know, and how we treat people or, you know, I mean, there, I'm sure there are countless examples, but, but, but we, yeah. and we also can't let that puff us up. Right. I mean, we can't, you know, and, and I think Augustine is really good on this. Like the pride mm-hmm. have to be brought low. Um, and, uh, I just saw a paper the other day about mm-hmm. Monica as mystagogue. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think about, you know, uh, Augustine's mother who didn't have the education that he did mm-hmm. who kind of teaches even, uh, the, the, the people that were at Casicaicum with Augustine, um, mm-hmm. it, it's Monica who teaches them a lot about ascending to God. Um, and you know, and so I think, uh, there's, you know, there's that kind of corrective that sounds like Bonaventure's offering. That's very Augustinian, um, Certainly. and just the current problem and, and maybe especially, and, and one of the things, I mean, and I know Augustine says this, but it's a problem that's, uh, sort of, um, pagan. And I use this word advisedly, mm-hmm. uh, pagan philosophy that is non-Christian philosophy doesn't really address. There isn't a need for humility in, in Plato, right? This is mm-hmm. something Augustine says in the city of God mm-hmm. um, and, mm-hmm. and, well, and other places. Um, but there, there isn't the same um, um, imprecation, uh, exhortation to humility because for, for Augustine and for Bonaventure, um, God is humble. Um, and so mm-hmm. it, that being the case, uh, th- then it's incumbent upon us to, to, to do likewise. Um, and it's also funny. I, I always just think about the fact that I wrote a dissertation about mm-hmm. humility, um, and, uh, <laughs> I had to use the most arrogant and like sort of scholarly erudite language that I could possibly use. Um, and in a way, you know, it's just always sort of, uh, counterintuitive, but I, I have that. I have that same problem, Chad. I think it's something we all wrestle with. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to Bonaventure and, and Augustine is that they, they hit it square and, uh, hit the nail right on the head. It's like, Hey, <laughs> what are we even doing here? Why are we spending our time going through these debates? What's the point of all of this? And that's where the, the Franciscan charism of poverty, you know, they are known as the lesser brothers. Bonaventure is really wrestling with this, right? What does Assisi have to do with Paris? Is it okay for people who claim to be servants of the servants to be in the classroom, you yeah. know, to be spending our time pouring through tomes and <laughs> right. Um, and so he's trying to, to chart this middle way where he, he's trying to say, look, you can contemplate the beauty of the natural world, but you should see it as a, he calls it a house of mirrors and he calls it a glowing coal emitting light. 
there's got to be some way where in emptying yourself and encountering the the fire of the heavenly furnace of Jerusalem is what he describes it as at the end of so many of his works they 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 culminate in mystical death that's one place where he's a little bit more bold than Aquinas um almost every of every one of Bonaventure's major works ends with him dying and he oh, said wow. he says let us pass now into the super luminous darkness he's very dionysian in that in that sense he he always ends with the the cessation of knowledge what he calls in uh, Colossians and Hexameron nulliform wisdom mm, wisdom yeah. that completely transcends our our mind and unites us into the divine life there is a a a, a deiformity that happens in the weight of love as we are pulled into communion with this 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 beautiful mystery of the the trinity um so he he gets mystical as i've mentioned before but he's also very rigorous and he says look jesus was fully human just like us and that's why we've got to know how humans know things we've got to learn our aristotle we've got to emphasize the fact that all of this comes to us first through the senses this is not some you know path toward the one that is disconnected from daily life and from service to, to to others for him so he try he tries to tie it all together i think he does a good job but you know i'm just well, I've one got, guy <laughs> I've got two more questions yep, uh, sure and they could you know i'm sure each one could take uh our remaining time about 15 sure. more minutes or so okay but, okay um but let's see so um okay real quick um so the, the these are conferences in the hexameron that is more or less uh about genesis right yeah, even though he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it in the vision that I discuss. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ostensibly. Not okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right. Well, maybe that even answers my question. Did he write uh, much about Genesis outside of this? No. Okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think that might be part of the reason that this book has been sort of overlooked. You know, this this is really the first... It, it just was recently translated by uh, Jay Hammond, who directed my dissertation, um, but it hasn't seen a lot of, of scholarship up until just recently. I think it's it's kind of um, a chimera of sorts in Bonaventure's corpus. There's a lot of contradictions. It's mm-hmm. very convoluted. It's a very difficult text to read. Um, it, it survives in anyway, but it, it's a difficult text. I, w- I will say yeah. that I've read almost everything Bonaventure's written. And this is by far and away the most, I would never recommend this to a reader. If you want to read Bonaventure, start with his Breviloquium. That's his little book of theology. That's where he goes through seven parts of theology, the Trinity, creation, sin, incarnation, grace, sacraments, and final judgment. And he just, it's just brilliant um, Mm. and beautiful. And that is where you should start with, with Bonaventure. I I teach that to intro uh, theology students and every, every year it just, it keeps getting better and better the more I read it. So anyhow, neither here nor there, but I think that is good to know for listeners. Like don't go pick up the collations in Examaron, please. (laughs) Right. Well, that, that was going to be another question that I had Mm. that I'd forgotten. Um, All right. Last one. Uh, I've I've teased this a little bit, and it, it maybe actually is the question that interested me the most. Just mm-hmm. uh, which was the the question over transcendentals. I mean, sure. I like so um, the the podcast started three uh, with it was three of us who all taught at a classical Christian school, mm-hmm. and at a lot of these classical Christian schools, they'll have on their wall the the true, the good, and the beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and you know it's sort of taken as um, axiomatic that those are the transcendentals, but in mm-hmm. fact. Um, there are more, um, or different ordering formulations, formulations. Yes. There's there's a whole kind of debate. Um, one of them being whether or not beautiful should be subsumed into the good. 
Um, and you know, and, and if you have true good and the beautiful, um, you're missing one, which is Mm. important for Bonaventure. So tell us something, uh, you know, what, what should we think about the transcendentals and how is that important for Bonaventure? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Um, a lot of this goes back to Bonaventure's Trinitarian theology. Um, specifically he wrote about this in disputed questions on the mystery of the Trinity and, um, I think he has a very clear articulation of how the different persons in the Trinity play their roles, what, uh-huh. what their what their energies, I guess we would describe that in using some Greek parlance. But, you know, the, the father is the unbegotten one, the source of everything, uh, mm-hmm. the darkness. The son is the begotten one, the expression, the voice, the light, the word, however you want to call it, the speech, the idea, any of these yeah. metaphors all work, the art of this unknowable father and then the spirit is the bond of love the 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 goodness that that brings together their perfect and eternal relationship of expression um that is bonaventure's starting point when he talks about where theology should begin he says look we've got to have this framework of emanation exemplarity and consummation a beginning a middle and an end from the highest through the highest and to the highest. That's one of the more famous quotes from the Collations and Examaron. He says, that's our entire metaphysics to proceed or to come from the highest, to proceed through the highest and to return or to be reformed or refashioned to the highest. And all of this happens through Christ, who he describes as the uncreated word, the one, you know, the source of all things through his relationship of expression to the, the, the father He describes him as the incarnate word, the one who enters the center of our own experience, coming down into the depths even of uh, absence when he dies on the cross. Christ goes to the very center of the earth, becomes fully identified with even those who feel that they're apart from God. And then finally, the inspired, the inspired word, the the word that rectifies and, and, and brings us back into right relationship through sanctification. So I think for Bonaventure, then, those are the the concerns that he has, the considerations in the background when he talks about the one, the true, and the good. He's thinking about this idea of a beginning, uh, a middle, and an end, all mediated through Christ, who can be described as all three of those things. Christ is the one that we approach the Father through, right? I mean, we don't—Augustine says this, right, that we yeah. come to know the divinity first through the humanity, Um I'll pause for a minute there and see what what your follow up might be. But well, I think no, that's, that's good background to know why Bonaventure chooses one true and 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 good there. Yeah, no, I mean I think that's all really helpful. I mean it's also just um, it's a different way of thinking about. I mean because sometimes they're used as sort of a slogan, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just sort of like oh yeah yeah we treat the true good and beautiful. Um, and, sure, sure. And there's a whole lot more depth uh, in. Mm. in you just explained from Bonaventure, uh, but that does, you know, so, do, so does Bonaventure subsume uh, beautiful into the good or how, how, how do you uh, understand? Yeah, I, I actually thought about that when you asked the question. I would actually say, if anything, it fits better in, in the center um, okay. because Christ is the one who ties all of these things together. I mean, for, for Protestant listeners, you know, you can kind of hang your hat on Bonaventure's Christocentrism. Yeah, sure. You really, really can. And um, there's a small section of the dissertation where I briefly engage with Augustine on on wisdom and the truth of number. And and it, it just makes me think about um, Bonaventure's whole metaphysics of divine ideas, that that the word is the perfect expression of every, every thought uh, or every 
the whole, the entire being of the father, he's consubstantial, right? This is what we say, those of us who are Nicene. That's that's the first big debate in the history of Christianity is how do we describe the son of God? Is the son equal to the father? And, and the answer is yes. And how does that happen? There is a beauty in this. There is a wonderful fittingness about the relationship of expression between the unknowable father and the knowable son who who brings light to all of us, not only in an abstract philosophical sense, but in our daily lives as we are inspired by the humility of Christ. Because look, Socrates was great. I mean, Socrates is a Christ-like figure in many ways, but there are many things in philosophy that make you wonder. For example, should you value your blood and your family or should you uh, turn away from enemies, right? Where, where does your honor lie? <laughs> Those types of questions aren't answered only by philosophy. For a Christian, we would ultimately say as hard as it is, Christ wants us to pray for our enemies. Christ wants sure. us to be willing to die, <laughs> to give up our life. Um, and, and it's things like that that just kind of make you take a, a, a pause and think there is something so beautiful and paradoxical about the son of God taking on our flesh and literally experiencing God's absence. It just being, <laughs> I don't know, just the, the, the whole moment I, I'm, I'm drawing from Hanser's von Balthasar, a little bit Holy Saturday. And mm. I, that has struck me so deeply recently of Christ understanding and feeling the pain of death is beyond what I can even imagine how a perfect being would do that. Anyway, now I'm getting a little bit emotional. <laughs> we want to avoid that, but, <laughs> or do well, we? <laughs> if, um, I mean, for, for listeners who are interested in Holy Saturday, um, mm. I do a podcast with um, Dr. Matthew Emerson, who wrote a book on uh, the descent to the dead, oh, um, from a Protestant nice. perspective. And excellent. he, what's that? I just said, excellent. Yeah. So he, um, you know, he, he actually mentions Balthazar at the end of that book, takes a little mm. bit of an issue with Balthazar actually on how he understands it, but, but okay. may, um, it, it's, it's helpful. Um, if you want to hear more, uh, thoughts mm. on that, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, mm -hmm. the book actually just won, um, just won an award from Christianity today, the 2020, like book of theology of the year or something. Um, nice. so, nice. uh, so we were lucky enough to have Dr. Uh, Emerson from my alma mater, uh, mm. on, so check that out. Um, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. Yeah. I think, uh, that's, um, that's all really helpful though. Um, and, uh, as far as the beautiful, it's, it's just an interesting, um, like I say, to me, it's just, it's just sort of interesting how these, uh, phrases that we use, you know, and mm. then sort of slogans and then almost devoid of content, um, because we don't think them through, but there are people, um, like Bonaventure who can help mm. us see the, the Trinitarian, uh, nature of these. And I, I've also sort of wondered what do we lose by ignoring the oneness, uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, that could be, that's a conversation that, that I want to have, um, more maybe, maybe on this podcast, um, but we'll see, but about what exactly are we missing by, by emphasizing just the true, the good, the beautiful and ignoring the one. I think it could open up more channels of dialogue at the minimum to focus on oneness because we are living in strange times <laughs> and it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to, relate to other people, sadly. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of polarization that's my my other side project, Conciliar Post, is is trying to rectify or at least acknowledge the fact of of theological polarization that's happening among Christians. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So perhaps that is an application of focusing on oneness is 
trying to find something that we do have in common. And Bonaventure is a common figure. He he exists, you know, centuries before the Reformation. He should be someone that Protestants and Catholics alike um, could benefit from from reading. Yeah. Well, um, I want to say thank you uh, to Dr. Winter. Um, and uh, I've, I've learned a lot in this podcast. I've learned a lot from Ben throughout the years. So it has been uh, fun to, to chat with him for a while. Um, so thanks. Well, thank you, Chad. And the feeling's certainly mutual. I um, owe you a, a major debt of gratitude for spending time looking through this text, giving me suggestions, uh, helping me with Latin, many other things. Chad, uh, an esteemed Latinist, certainly. Um, if, if anything, that is something that you are. <laughs> so thank you for bringing me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. And thanks to everybody for listening. All right.